So if, if you're a Christian, you know this, or you should know this. If you're not, I just want to offer this, that there is no more significant question than who is Jesus. The crowds ask this as he rides into the city. Who is this guy that he's acting like this? Throughout the Gospels, it's the question that dominates everything. At some point, Jesus takes the disciples aside and says, what's the word on the street out there about me? Who are people saying that I am? And they list all these answers, all of which are wrong. Some people say this, some people say that. And then he looks at his disciples and says, who do you say that I am? And Peter, speaking for the twelve, says, you are the Christ the Son of God. By the way, we'll come back to this in a few minutes, but but maybe you've heard this before, maybe you haven't. When we call Jesus Jesus Christ, that's not like Nick Noah. That's not like Richard Chung. That's Jesus the Christ. Christ is not his last name. It's a title. It's like Alexander the Great. The Great is not Alexander's last name. It's, uh, it's a title. It's Christ in Greek. It's Messiah in Hebrew. And whatever else that means, it means king. It means the one who will come from the line of David, to reign over his people, to reign over the world, and ultimately the significance of all the things that we're going to experience in the coming week, Holy Week, is that the answer to this question, who is Jesus? Ultimately, the Gospels overall are there to teach us who Jesus is, but it is especially in the final week of his life, in Palm Sunday today, and Monday Thursday, which by the way, that's probably the one that is the most mysterious to us today. This Thursday is Monday Thursday, before Good Friday. Monday is from a Latin word that means commandment, and it celebrates and it commemorates and, and encourages us to remember the final night of his life when he washes his disciples' feet and he gives them a new commandment to love one another as he has loved us. And of course, Good Friday, when he dies and he suffers on the cross. Easter Sunday, three days later, when he rises from the dead. That's what this coming week is about. And ultimately, you cannot answer the question, who is Jesus, without taking into account what happens in this final week of his life. In the bulletin, we don't usually do this, but you maybe notice that right next to the sermon text in your bulletin are four passages from the Gospels that are laid out for you. This is what they are. All four of those passages in Mark in Matthew and Luke and in John is Mark 11 through 16. These are chapters Matthew 21 to 28, Luke 19 to 24, and John 12 to 21. Those all start with the triumphal entry and they take you to the end of the story. And, and one thing to remember to, to notice, it's very easy to miss, is that when you're reading the Gospels, probably many of you have a sense that, yeah, you know, Matthew and Luke, that they give some of the birth stuff at the beginning, but most of the Gospels are focused on three years of Jesus' life, about three years. But if you were coming to the Gospels for the first time and you were reading them, you would probably have this experience yourself, or you probably have a, a real sense of confusion over how long this story takes place over. And this is taking place in a couple of weeks. This case take place in a couple of months, it was over 30 or 40 years. And in general, if you connect the dots, it's about three years total. But what's so fascinating is over the course of 30 plus years in Jesus's life, the vast majority of the gospels focus on the final week of his life. The vast majority of the space is given over just to the final week of his life. Famous German New Testament scholar in the 20th century, Martin Koller, has this famous expression where he says, the Gospels, if you understand them rightly, they're really just passion stories with extended introductions. What they are focused on is what happened in the final week of his life. Everything else is set up for that. And I would suspect that for many of us, the triumphal entry, like it's cool, it's memorable, but what exactly is this moment about? And that's, that's what we want to think about this morning. And, and, and here's two ways I want to frame the triumphal entry. I want to call it that. The, the Gospels won't call it that. And, and, and there's, there's truth to that. But there's also, I think, something deceiving about that. For instance, if you are looking in the passage we just read, Jesus quotes Zechariah chapter 9. 
in Matthew 21, verse 5. And if you go back and you look at Zechariah 9, Matthew takes something out. That seems like it would fit, but he edits it out. It says, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you. Matthew then jumps right to the next line, which is humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fold of a beast of burden. If you go back to Zechariah 9, there's a line in between them, which is righteous and victorious or triumphant is he. And so there's a line right there about the king is coming and he's coming triumphantly and victoriously, but Matthew leaves it out. Now you could say that's just random or it's accidental, but I think it's because Matthew knows what we associate with triumph and with victory is perhaps deceptive about what's actually going on here. And so, yes, this is a triumphal entry, but it's also so different from what we associate with triumph, what we associate with victory, with power, that he also wants us to, to really pay attention to what's going on here. So two ways that to frame the triumphal entry, and then we'll look at it, um, and especially in light of what we did last week. The first way to think about the triumphal entry is this, I want to propose to you, is Jesus' coming out party. This is Jesus' coming out party. If you have ever read the Gospels, maybe you have noticed that until this point in Jesus' ministry and life, there is this very strange, odd dynamic where Jesus is constantly telling people to be quiet. And he's constantly calling people to silence, and he's telling people not to tell others who he is. And he's saying, hey, I just killed you. Keep a tight lip on this. Don't go out and tell other people. The disciples figure it out, and Jesus just keeps it there. He doesn't want the crowds to know who he is, that it's not time yet. The triumphal entry is his coming out party. It is the moment he declares intentionally and publicly who exactly he is. And like any good coming out party, it's, it's supposed to make a statement. It is supposed to be characteristic of who he is. And as we'll see, and perhaps as you heard, it is not what people, especially the people of Israel, were expecting the returning king to look like. But notice in all of the gospels here, it's the two blind men sitting by the side of the road that they call out who Jesus is. And his disciples in the crowds kind of picked up on what Jesus has been doing for the last three years. I mean, they say, hey, God, be quiet, don't say anything. And Jesus actually not only doesn't affirm that, he actually says it's time. In the Gospel of Luke, as the children and others by the side of the road with their palm branches are holding it up, the, the crowds, the disciples again, sorry, the, the disciples and the religious leaders again say, hey, Jesus, quiet these guys. And Jesus makes this really interesting statement. I tell you, if these guys were quiet, even the stones would rise up and start praising at this point. It is Jesus' coming out party. The secret is over. The time of hiddenness is over. Jesus is publicly revealing and declaring who he is in this moment. The second thing, very much connected to that, is the triumphal entry sets the tone for everything that will happen in the final week of his life. It is foreshadowing every other encounter, event, event moment that happens from here until he rises from the dead on Easter Sunday. Sorry if I ruined the ending there for you guys. I'm guessing you know that that's his coming. Um, but everything that comes, the, the triumphal entry, sets the tone for it, and it foreshadows it. And so I want us to hear um, that, that on the one hand, there is this openness, this boldness that Jesus has here to declare who he is. But on the other hand, there is this strangeness, this unexpected, paradoxical, even absurd and ridiculous nature to what he does here. And we have to hold both of those things together, that he's openly proclaiming himself the returning messianic king, and that he's completely at the same time upending expectations of what that would look like and what that means. So what I want us to do for the next few minutes is look at the triumphal entry and foreshadowing the final week of Jesus' life through the lens that we looked at last week. If you weren't here last week, we asked the question, what does it mean to be a human being? And we saw that soulmate, 
Psalm 144 and Job 7 all ask that question. What is a human being that God should, should care about us and think about us? What is the son of a human being, the son of Adam, that God should prioritize us so much? And the three things we saw is it means glory. Human beings were created by God, crowned with glory and honor to rule over the world on his behalf. To be a human being is to be a royal figure in the universe, to be a king and a queen of Narnia. All human beings, men and women, Jews and Gentiles, rich and poor, were all created to exert God's dominion, God's authority over the world. But that's not, as the book of Hebrews says, what we currently see because of our sin. On the other hand, Psalm 144 reminds us that to be a human being is to be incredibly weak, to be fragile, is to be vulnerable, is to constantly experience your own helplessness and the need to look to your creator and to call out to him to rescue you from trouble that you cannot rescue yourself from. And finally, and the most unpopular one, but the one that you cannot understand Jesus without this, is to be a human being means suffering. To be a human being means to be called by God to enter into suffering in some mysterious way that is connected to his purposes. And I think these three ideas, these three themes, glory, weakness, and suffering, they're the themes that are here in Palm Sunday. So let's look at it. I encourage you to have Matthew 21 open before you. Notice, and I set you up for this last week, notice that when the crowds are there with their palm branches, and we'll up reference in a few minutes, what exactly, that's such a goofy thing, right? It's so goofy that we have palm branches here, and it really is. It's, it, it's absurd, it's ridiculous, that's intentional. After the crowds kind of acclaim him as he rides into the city, the, uh, the religious leaders in verses 14 and following basically just say, you know, they're indignant in verse um, 15. Hosanna to the son of David, the blind, the lame, the children are crying it out, and others are indignant. And they said to Jesus, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read? And then he quotes Psalm 8, out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. When he quotes Zechariah 9, that is a prophecy about the coming king returning to Zion. Whatever else the triumphal entry is, and in the ancient world, it'd probably be a little easier to recognize. Whenever somebody, whenever a king arrives who's about to reign, he gets on a horse, he gets on an animal, and he rides through the gates of the city. Alexander the Great visits wherever he conquered. In Babylon and Assyria, ancient conquerors of Israel, Genghis Khan, all these guys throughout history, they ride majestically through the city. Caesar and Rome did this all the time. That Jesus is a king riding into the city, and he is returning. We're going to talk about this very briefly today, but you maybe wondered why, when we read it out loud, why are, we, why are we looking at this today? Is the mother of James and John asks a really interesting question about Jesus, to Jesus right before he rides into Jerusalem. And I'm going to translate it in our vernacular. She's basically saying, Jesus, I know you're the king. I know you're about to reign over the world. I know you're about to become king. When you become president, can my two sons have the best two cabinet positions? Can they, can they be like high up in your coming administration? I would love for this one to be a Supreme Court justice, and I would love for this one to be the Secretary of Defense. Can I have the best two positions, whatever they are, when you become king? And what's so interesting, and I think we usually miss this, is Jesus does not respond with, how dare you? so arrogant. He also doesn't say, oh, you completely misunderstood. I'm not going to become king. Instead, he gives this very interesting answer. I don't think you know what you're asking for. I don't think you know what you're asking for. And that is going to be echoed in the final week of Jesus' life. We'll come back to that. But all of it assumes that this is the moment Jesus goes public with his kingship. One of the most fascinating claims of the New Testament is that his death and his resurrection, Good Friday and Easter, are the moment that Jesus becomes king. 
that he becomes the Lord overall. The Gospel of Matthew is going to end. We're not looking at it today. But the Gospel of Matthew will end with a scene in Matthew 28 where Jesus said, guys, all authority in heaven on earth is now mine. Go to the nations and teach them to obey me. Something has happened from this moment where weakness and, and just he doesn't have many disciples. And then until the end of the story where Jesus receives all authority and heaven on earth. And even though, and we'll see this in a second, it's not what you would expect. As the king, he rides in and he's got a bunch of subjects who are there to welcome him. They got palm branches in their hands and he's being acclaimed as the king. You're not a king unless you have a kingdom and a bunch of subjects. And Jesus rides in and he's got a bunch of subjects. And again, the story ends with the claim, not just that he died for our sins, not just that he rose from the dead and defeated death, but that he's now in charge of the universe. That Jesus is now Lord over all, and this is the moment he declares it publicly. And so to understand the final week of Jesus' life, you need to wrestle with glory, with authority, with this is finally the human being who bears God's image, who will rule over the entire world on God's behalf. This is the moment where Jesus goes public with that claim. And yet, here's the second thing with weakness. Everything about the claim is ridiculous, is absurd, at least with respect to human expectations. Even the song we just sang that Chris and Eric Lezen, like humble and king are not two words you put together in most of human history. People with lots of power and people who are humble and lowly tend to be mutually exclusive in the history of the human race. He is a humble king. And so let me just point out a couple of the details that Jesus clearly orchestrates. Everything about this, Jesus is depicted as being intentional. We know first, he doesn't ride a war horse, a stallion, into the city like Alexander the Great, like Julius Caesar, like Genghis Khan, like all the great kings of old. He doesn't ride a war horse in, he rides a donkey in. That's intentional. Not only that, it's not even his. He has to borrow it from somebody else. He doesn't have his own donkey let alone his own world. He has to borrow it from somebody else. And notice there is no saddle on it. Last minute, they have to take some of their, you know, kind of thrift store clothes, throw it on the horse so that you can sit on it. Everything about this scene is pathetic, is lowly, is unimpressive. And then finally, as he rides in, he's the returning Davidic king. He's going to have an army to conquer the nations. And the New Testament constantly affirms that he does. And yet, instead of swords in their hands... They got these. So when you wonder, why do we have these? You can do a lot of stuff with this, I guess. You can wave it around when you're saying, you know, you can't, you can't stab anybody with these. You know, like somebody's trying to like mug you on the street. This is just not going to help you. Um, and if you're a kid and you want to like pretend sword fight or you want to be Luke Skywalker in Star Wars, these are really pathetic for a sword fight. Um, in the book of Revelation, Revelation 7, we're not going to look at it today, but you might reflect on it later today, this week. There is this, as so often in Revelation, this paradoxical scene where the beginning of Revelation 7, John hears this rumbling on the side. He doesn't see it yet, but he hears it. And what he hears from the angel is that the army of the Lamb has appeared. And then there's a census, like an Old Testament census, where you count the number of soldiers up, and there's 12,000 from all 12 tribes of Israel. And there, it's loud, it's impressive, it's loud, like an, like an army with armor and swords and all that. It's rattling, it shakes the earth, and John hears this. And then, as so often in Revelation, what John hears does not line up with what he then sees when he looks at it. As he turns and he looks, and what he sees is a bunch of riffraff from every tribe and tongue and nation, and they don't have armor, they have white robes, and they don't have swords, they have palm branches. This is the army of Jesus. 
which means that it's not a typical army. It's not an army that uses violence. It's not an army that's here to conquer the nations through dominance, through power, that this is an instrument of praise and of peace, not of violence. And Christians, for us, one thing I want to remember, this is the only weapon you get to use as one of Jesus' soldiers in the world. You do not get to pull out a gun. You do not get to coerce people. One of the things that paradoxically Palm Sunday reminds us of is that violence is weak. Coercion is futile. Trying to force people to do what you think they're supposed to do ultimately accomplishes nothing. Jesus does not come to conquer the world as the king the way other kings come to conquer the world. Here's what John Calvin says on the triumphal entry in Matthew 21. This would have been a ridiculous display, this whole charade, riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, borrowed by a saddle, with palm branches, if it had not been in, in accordance with the prediction of Zechariah. In order to lay claim to the honors of royalty, Jesus enters Jerusalem riding an ass, a magnificent display, truly. More especially when the ass was borrowed from somebody else, and when the lack of the saddle and of accoutrements compelled the disciples to throw their secondhand garments on it, which was a mark of mean and disgraceful poverty. And he is attended, I admit, by a large retinue, but of what sort of people? Of those who had been hastily assembled from the neighboring village, sounds of loud and joyful welcome are heard, but from whom? From the very poorest and from those who belong to the despised multitude. You notice who's mentioned? The lame, the blind, and children. This is his army. These are his royal subjects. In consequence, I'm sorry, um, one might think, therefore, that Jesus intentionally exposed himself in this moment to the ridicule of everyone. And yet, this was necessary because in consequence of the time of his death being at hand in the coming week, he intended to show in this moment the triumphal entry by a solemn performance what was the nature of his kingdom. So then, as his removal to heaven was at hand, he intended now to finally commence his reign openly upon the earth. But as he had two things to do at the same time, as he had one to exhibit some proof of his kingdom, and two to show that it does not resemble other earthly kingdoms and does not consist of the uh, fading riches and weak power of this world, it was altogether necessary for Jesus to take this method on Palm Sunday. And so, just like the parables, we're going to start a series on Wednesday night this coming week on the parables of Jesus in the months to come. Just like the parables often start with, the kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of God is like this, the triumphal entry is a living parable of what the kingdom of God is like and what it is not like. The children, the lame, the blind, they're his subjects. Um, bit random, and I know I often go here, but I'm going to do it again today. When the Lord of the Rings movies came out years ago, I was a lover of the books for a long, long time. There's a number of changes that the movies make, and I love the movies. They're great. To the books, most of the changes are really inconsequential. There's a couple of changes where the Hollywood version really misses and even moves away from kind of the profoundly Christian vision of Tolkien. One, and, and maybe the, the most obvious one, is the way the ring is destroyed at the end. I don't know if you noticed that I'm ruining it for you, but in the movie, Gollum like bites Frodo's finger off, and then Frodo's like hanging on the edge, but he gets up and he bites Gollum and he kind of throws him in the lake, and Frodo's kind of this hero. It's not how it happens in the book. In the book, Frodo is completely gone to the dark side. He's evil. He's just going to keep the ring for himself. And Gollum bites his finger off. And then as he celebrates madly, he just accidentally falls into the pit. Frodo and human beings have nothing to do 
with winning the day. The human beings are not the hero of the story. But my favorite one and the biggest change is Galadriel, the elf princess, says at a certain point, the whole book is like these hobbits. Like most people don't even know who they are. They're so small. They're so inconsequential in a worldly sense that most people in Middle Earth don't even know what hobbits are. And there's a line in the movie when Galadriel says, even the smallest person can change the world. And that is the opposite of what Tolkien says in the book. Tolkien says in the book, only the smallest person can change the world. And so I'm going to use an analogy here. You guys are not Aragorn. You guys are not Gandalf. You guys are not Legolas. You're hobbits. You're the riffraff. We are the riffraff that Jesus intentionally chooses hobbits and not wizards, not knights, not elves that are really great in work. He chooses hobbits to be the way that he brings his kingdom into the world. I'll, I'll end with this in a few minutes, but whether it's in the gospel itself, or whether it's in your own life and how God works in you and through you, one of the things Passion Week reminds us of, but that is run through all scripture, is do not run away from weakness. Do not run away from weakness in Jesus. Do not run away from weakness in your life. Do not see it as a hindrance to God working in your life, to a hindrance to God working through you in the lives of others. From the beginning, as soulmate reminds us, God has chosen to work through the weak. God has chosen to manifest his power through human insufficiency. And so Jesus voluntarily, intentionally embraces weakness as the means of his kingdom. Um, real quick, and this is not just Jesus. This is a, a big theme in scripture that Jesus doesn't show up in 2,000 years ago and all of a sudden start doing something brand new. Jesus is... And this is why the Zechariah 9 quotation is there. This is why Psalm 8 is cited. Jesus is the fulfillment of what God has been doing throughout all of history. And so I also want you to hear that Palm Sunday is not a U-turn in the way that God works in history. From the beginning, if you have eyes to see, God has always chosen to use the weak. God has always chosen to not work through the strong, but to work through the weak. At the very beginning of scripture, after human beings muck it all up and we rebel against God and we turn away, the first promise in scripture, redemptively, something called kind of like the, the first promise of the gospel in Genesis 3.15, is that the child of the woman, the seed of the woman, shall be the one to overcome the enemy, to overcome, to crush the head of Satan. In Psalm 8, verse 2, which Jesus quotes here, he says that it's through babies and babbling infants that God chooses to still the avenger, chooses to overcome his enemies. From the beginning, God has chosen to work through babies. He's chosen to work through the weak. He has chosen to work through very frail people. Abraham is incredibly weak at the beginning of the story. Jacob is a complete loser. Moses is a stutterer and doesn't trust in God. Gideon, he's got, he's already outnumbered like 10 to 1, and God's like, you know what, you have a few too many, why don't you get rid of some of them and bring an even smaller army? God constantly works through the weak. Naomi and Ruth, David, the littlest and youngest of all of his brothers, and showing up to fight Goliath. Esther and Mordecai, Daniel and their three friends, the uneducated disciples who are idiots and morons and not impressive, Mary being chosen to give birth to Jesus. Women will be the witnesses of the resurrection, and they have no legal status in ancient courtrooms. 
Not exactly who you want to be your witnesses if you want to make a big deal through worldly channels. In 1 Corinthians, Paul looks at them and says, not only do you have a crucified Messiah, not only did God send you an apostle who can't speak very well, but look at you guys, not many of you are rich, not many of you are well-to-do, not many of you are powerful. God has chosen the weak things of the world to overcome the strong before Jesus and after Jesus. This is the only way that God works in the world. His kingdom does not come through human power. It comes through weakness, and the triumphal entry sets the tone for the way that Jesus' kingdom works. It does not come through the sword. It comes through palm branches. It comes through peace. It comes through humility. It comes through sacrifice. And so the third thing, and the most important one, is that Palm Sunday, you might not see it on the surface, but it also sets the tone for the final week of Jesus' life, and that it reminds us and it foreshadows that his kingdom comes through suffering. His kingdom comes through suffering. This is a bit of a, a side here that I was reminded that yesterday, April 9th, 77 years ago, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was hanged by the Third Reich. And every April, when we come to this time of year, it's a good rumor. I mean, as crazy as it is, it's unlikely that technically he could still be alive today. But like technically, he could still be an old man today. Unlikely, but still, like, like this is this is not that long ago. And he was five years younger than I am now, and he was executed by the Third Reich. It is often the case that those who belong to Jesus' kingdom do not advance it through their victories, but through their suffering. If you look back in Matthew 20, and this is why we started here, in Matthew 20, verses 17 through 19. Jesus gives his third and final prediction of his passion. It is amazing, and, and we can miss this because we read it so often, or because we know the ending now. It is amazing that the disciples still have delusions of grandeur when he rides into Jerusalem. Because he has been saying constantly, guys, I'm going to Jerusalem, and I am going to be rejected. I am going to just get the crap kicked out of me. I am going to be tortured. I am going to be handed from Jew Jewish leaders to Gentile leaders. They are all going to mock me, flog me, and then I will be executed. And whatever victory is there comes to an act of God responding to human helplessness. And the ultimate act of human helplessness is a lying dead in your grave. And then God just says, get up, breathe again. And that's the way the kingdom comes, through human weakness. Suffering is the dominant theme in the final week of Jesus' life. If you, and by the way, the reason that I put the passages in the, uh, in the bulletin right next to the sermon text is I would encourage you to consider reading through the stories of Jesus' final week of his life and the coming week. At the very least, choose one of those gospels. Maybe you have time to read all of them. One thing you will see if you pay attention is that almost every encounter Jesus has from this point on to the cross is conflict, is rejection is suffering, is being having a plot to murder him, lamenting over Jerusalem for not turning to him, suffering in Gethsemane and, and sweating so profusely it's like blood and crying out, Father, let this cup pass, but he has to drink it. He's being tortured by leaders. He's being misrepresented by religious leaders, and he is betrayed and deserted by his own followers. Everything goes wrong from here on. Everything gets turned upside down for him. Let's come back to this as we end. The mother, in the very next passage in Matthew 20, says, Jesus, when you become king, and my two baby boys that I delight in, can they sit at your right hand and your left hand and you become king? And I mentioned a few moments ago, Jesus does not say, how dare you, or, oh, you misunderstood, I'm not here to be king. He says, don't think you know what you're asking for. And he grounds it in his own person, in his own 
way of life when he says, the first among you will be the slave, the greatest among you will be the humble servant, even as the Son of Man did not come to be served, even though he did come to be a king, but he came to serve others as the king. Then he looks at his disciples and says, that's not just Jesus, that's us too. It will not be so among you. You see how human power is used in the world? That doesn't fly here. We do not use power like that. And in response to the mother, he says, you will drink the cup. There will be suffering for your sons, but to sit at my right and my left hand is not mine to give. I don't know if you've ever noticed this. The mother of the sons of Zebedee, James and John, only shows up one other time in the entire Bible. Only shows up one other time in the entire Bible, and it's a couple of days later. You can go look at it on your own this week. As Jesus is being crucified, a couple of things are happening in the background. I want you to reflect on this week, and that are the fulfillment of Palm Sunday. The first thing is that the soldiers strip him naked, and they beat him, and they torture him, and then they take a crown of thorns which is what a king wears, but a thorn is going to make him believe it's going to be painful, and they put it on his head. And then they find a purple robe, and they put it on his royalty. And then they put a staff in his right hand that they've beaten him with, and they put it in his right hand, which is kind of like a king's scepter. And then they bow down to him and say, Hail, King Jesus. It's like a coronation scene, but it's pure mockery. One of the things that the Gospels want us to hear is that is exactly what is happening in this scene. This is the moment that Jesus becomes king. This is the moment you see human glory, that you see human dominion over the world, and you see Jesus become king. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus is almost never called a king, and he never claims that he's a king until this moment. And you read all of the Gospels, and as Jesus is being crucified, every single character at some point or another, Jewish or Gentile, says king of the Jews, usually with sarcasm in their voice. The placard over his cross says the king of Israel, and there's a mock coronation. And then the gospel of Matthew tells us, and some women were watching this in the distance. distance. And the last one named is the mother of James and John. And very easy to miss. Some of you have heard this before. But what did she ask for? That when you become king, my two sons would sit at your right hand and your left hand. And that same exact expression arises. And it says, two thieves, two robbers were crucified, one in his right hand and one in his left hand. And the mother is watching this. And now she hears the answer. You do not know what you're asking for. This is what it means to reign with Jesus in his kingdom. So I'm just to look at him and say, thank you for suffering for us. It is also to be called into that same kind of service in the world. And so as we end, and ultimately the, the triumphal entry is not an end in itself. It points to the cross. And it has no meaning apart from that. And so as we think about, even this Friday, Kirk is going to preach. There's going to be six churches along with us that gather this Friday at 7.30. Really encourage you to come in first in the details or at the end of the bulletin. We'll mention in the announcements. It is so significant that we call that Good Friday. Not Tragic Friday that gets overturned three days later, but that's Good Friday. The cross is not a defeat that needs to be overturned on Easter. It is not a temporary setback that frustrated what God wanted to do through Jesus that then gets overridden on Easter morning. It is the moment you see his glory. It is the moment he becomes king over the world, and not just glory, but through weakness, through suffering. This is the moment all of the enemies of God are defeated by human helplessness, by human weakness, and by a commitment to serve God, to love God, to love others. The cross is glory. The cross is weakness. The cross is suffering. This is the strange triumph of the Lamb. 
And so if you get a chance this week to read the five of these stories from the final week of Jesus' life, almost certainly the Gospel of John is the last of the four Gospels. And in John 19, Jesus is standing as a few days later. He is standing stripped, tortured, beaten, and bruised before Pontius Pilate. And Pontius Pilate, this is often true in the Gospel of John, that human characters who have no idea what God is doing through Jesus often speak better than they know in the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John often operates on two, letter, on two levels. Earlier in the Gospel, in John 11, Caiaphas, the high priest, said, it is better for one guy to die than for the whole nation to perish. He was not doing a sermon on substitutionary atonement. He was a Machiavellian politician saying, you got to crack some eggs if you want to make an offer. It's better that this guy goes down so that Israel doesn't get destroyed by the Romans. That's all he meant, but he was speaking prophetically that it is better for one man to die than for the whole people of God to perish. That actually is true, even though it's not what he meant. And Pontius Pilate drags Jesus out in this bizarre show, in this tragic kind of uh, humiliating show. He's got the crown of thorns, and he's got the purple robe, and he looks at the crowds and he says, behold your king. Behold your king. And what he means there is nothing but mockery. You're a defeated, subdued, pathetic people, and here's your king. And then even more famously, and I think even more profoundly, a little later on, he looks at Jesus, and he looks at the crowd, and he says, behold the man. Behold the human being. In Latin, it's a very famous phrase, ecce homo. This is the man. A lot of famous Christian paintings throughout history with Jesus bloodied and bruised are called Ekehoma, and Pilate is speaking that he knows this is what a human being is supposed to look like. This is what the king of Israel is supposed to look like. This is the moment the kingdom of God comes into the world. And for the rest of history, we look back on that. We celebrate that. We need to remember, but we also remember that it sets the tone for the kind of kingdom we try to be today, which is why you will never show up if you understand the gospel, bringing a sword or a gun, you just get your palm branches. You can't defend yourself with this. You can't make anybody do anything you don't want with this thing. It's just a way to remember that we belong to the humble king who through his suffering, through his weakness, gained dominion over the world, and we belong to him. And so as we enter this final week, let's remember, not just that he's king, let's remember the kind of king he is. One who lays down his life for his friends, one who conquers through weakness, who is powerful through humility, as the kind of king Jesus is. And when we get to this Friday, let's really feel this is Good Friday. This is Good Friday. It really is. And so let's pray.